the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, class, uh, with the school in session here, we should ring, have a bell ring in there, Richard. I should have brought the bell in here. Um, just to give you an example of some of the agenda taking place that goes beyond just so-called academic freedom in the classroom for um, school teachers, but to even the manner in which the influence has taken place in the authorized textbooks, uh, I, I'm going to quote on one of them. This comes from page 11 of Kyle Olson's new book, Indoctrination, um, just talking about uh, manufacturing. And uh, this, uh, this particular passage, and I quote, uh, Rose was right. Some passages subtly put down the United States. Uh, for example, here's a quote, companies in Japan make reliable televisions and radios. German factories make some of the world's best cars. Some companies in the United States are very good at making computers. Did you catch that? In America, only some companies excel. Now, it's amazing. I mean, to be sure, um, Kyle, we have seen some amazing advancements in technology by both Germans and by Japanese firms. A lot of that technology that had its roots and genesis right here in the United States, and yet it seems as if we just kind of we kind of take third position, third seat there to other foreign countries. Right, and that was um, that, pas- that, uh, that passage that I quoted there was from a column by a Washington Post columnist um, who did this analysis of a book called Social Studies Alive, uh, which is a, a third-grade textbook um, geared towards very young kids, and it pushes this, this one-sided, biased, um, agenda um, uh, uh, against, frankly, an uh, anti-American agenda. And so it, it was interesting because this book, Social Studies Alive, has come under a lot of scrutiny because it is biased. Um, it, it only focuses on um, a, a left-wing perspective. And even this, this lip, self-described liberal um, uh, columnist also came to that conclusion. And it's a great example of a textbook like that, a biased textbook getting into the classroom, um, and then the establishment, whether it's the teachers' union or a, a school board or the administrators, then defend it. And they say, oh, there's no bias in it, and, and you know, and this is, this is the type of information that kids should be learning. You know, it's amazing because the, the inaccuracies and the agendizing of education goes from the subtle to outright demeaning and obvious, as you cite there in that particular passage. Uh, you know, no, no acknowledgement of the fact that the automobile was invented in the United States, the mm-hmm. computer was invented in the United States, uh, that uh, the, the uh, tubes, uh, the precursor of uh, transistors, Invented in the United States. The U.S. gets no credit for that. It just says that some companies, some companies do a good job. Not an excellent job, just a good job. So, you know, I I guess to all of you that work for, uh, you know, some boring companies like IBM and Hewlett Packard and uh, uh, Texas Instruments and others, uh, just, uh, oh, well, too bad. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. 
And that, that is what is such a shame. And, and what I find disturbing about this is that, is that uh, uh, teachers will use this textbook, and, then, um, and, and what is most disturbing about this textbook in particular is that it leads, question, it leads students to a particular question where then they have to give essentially a predetermined answer. Um, and so it will, it will say, it, it will talk about um, child care as a right and how there are some countries, uh, like Vietnam, for example, that gives child care as a public service. And shouldn't the United States have that as a public service, too? And so here you are as a third grader, and what do you honestly expect a third grader to say? No, we shouldn't do that. Um, and so what it's doing is it's, it's setting these kids up to give an answer um, that unfortunately the the activists in the classroom want to hear. And of course, it leaves out a lot of the the important facts, such as uh, somebody has to pay for that uh, child care, and that in communist countries like Vietnam, and I know because I've been there, uh, yeah, they're providing that uh, that child care for free. It's also a way in which they introduce and indoctrinate young children into the benefits, so called, of communism. Right, isn't that convenient? And so, and that's that's the thing. Is so, do you honestly expect a, a third grader to say, "Well, how would that impact my my parents' taxes?" Or what you know? And and, and so, you can't honestly uh, expect a, someone, a, a young child of that age, to be thinking in those terms. But it, but what I show in the book is that these types of issues, um, whether it's it's that type of issue or social justice, math, um, or whatever it may be is being pushed on kids at younger and younger ages. So the stage is being set then for political and social activism in public schools as opposed to what heretofore had been education. That's exactly right. And because there, there's this mindset uh, in, in public education uh, by, by many people within the establishment that they feel that it's their duty and their right uh, to use their classroom to push this personal political agenda. And they view um, their role as turning students into um, agents of change. And so we shouldn't just be equipping them for life and making sure that they, um, that they have knowledge so they can go, to, uh, go into higher education or a career or the military or do whatever they want to do. Uh, we need to turn them into agents of change. And to me, that is what is so disturbing about, uh, about public schools today. And let me tell you how far some of that uh, that change factor takes place. I'm going to quote again. This is page 38 of Kyle's new book, again entitled Indoctrination. And I quote, this is quoting an article uh, of Howard Zim, and he writes, Granted, it's good to have historical figures we can admire and emulate, but why hold up as models the 55 rich white men who drafted the Constitution as a way of establishing a government that would protect the interests of their class, slaveholders, merchants, bondholders, and land speculators? Close quote. So we have now reduced the founding fathers of the most successful and freest nation on earth, one of the few nations that has a problem with people illegally getting into the country as opposed to trying to escape. Are you listening? North Korea, Vietnam, etc., etc. Uh, and and we've, we've suddenly now done an absolute 180. Yeah, granted, there were things about America in the 1700s that we probably wouldn't be very prideful of today, but the fundamentals of why and how this nation was founded and upon what basis is something that is held up as a pride point in, in nations all across the world, apparently except our own. 
That's right, and and it's such a shame because Howard Zinn, um, who who that quote is from, it is held up um, on in, in leftist circles um, in high esteem of because he is this historian who has you know this uh, has recast American history, and this is what he is producing. And unfortunately, he actually he has produced textbooks, and his textbooks are in a U.S. history class classes in American high schools today. And so this is the type of, of um, quote-unquote history that high school students are, are being fed. And so it's no wonder that we're seeing our, our personal liberties, um, our self-governance, um, our, our uh, free markets being eroded um, because, you know, people aren't uh, appreciating them. They're not seeing the value in them. And they're thinking that you know, America is to blame, uh, free markets are to blame, and so we have got to change those and, and fundamentally transform America. Well, I, I've had uh, teachers in the past and concerned parents even send me copies of passages from history books that have characterized uh, Mao, for example, Mao Zedong, uh, as the great liberator of China. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, much like, I suppose, uh, Stalin liberated the Russians, uh, Kim Jong-il liberated the North Koreans, and Hitler liberated the Germans. We'll come back to more of this startling agenda of what's going on in some circles of public education, not about educating children anymore, but rather indoctrinating them as miniature agents of change for their agenda. Our conversation tonight is with Kyle Olson. The book is called Indoctrination, How Useful Idiots Are Using Our Schools to Subvert American Exceptionalism. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. With author Kyle Olson, how deep and widespread is this agenda? Well, let me give you another example from his new book, Indoctrination, a teaching lesson plan calendar uh, that um, helps teachers highlight for children some of the important dates in history that they need to be mindful of. such as August the 5th, which represents the 30th anniversary of Ronald Reagan breaking the Air Traffic Controllers Union, or uh, August 10th, the 50th anniversary of the U.S. spraying toxic herbicides in Vietnam, Um, February the 17th, notable for being the birthday of Black Panther Party founder Huey Newton, Uh, let's not forget November the 20th, Transgender Day of Remembrance, Um, how about November the 26th, Buy Nothing Day? Uh, April the 29th, the 20th anniversary of the start of the Los Angeles uprising. (laughs) People rioted not for Rodney King. They rioted to steal. And that's the uprising. Of course, May 1st is International Workers' Day. At least let us not forget May 20th, which uh, marks the anniversary of Cuba's independence from U.S. occupation. Yeah, nothing in there about uh, uh, the 4th of July, 1776. Uh, Dare we talk about such things as the American moon landing, Pearl Harbor, uh, any of those important events. No, it's all got to have some sort of agenda behind it, Kyle. I'm sure they just ran out of space. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, so many important I, days to remember. Yeah, nothing about Constitution Day uh, or, or anything like that. And I think, again, it's a great example of um, putting a resource in front of teachers and then raising those questions, because then 
There are other, uh, another aspect to that uh, social justice uh, planning guide is uh, a question for each day. And so they're just incredible um, questions about you know, just dealing with these social justice issues and all of that sort of thing. And so what I fear happen- what I fear is happening is that um, our classrooms are turning into these social justice laboratories where um, activist teachers are turning our students into uh, fellow activists um, to change America. Well, and the other interesting thing that, that dawned on me, I read one passage in, in your book later on uh, when you talk about the Great Depression and you quote from another wonderful piece of revisionist history here, uh, the old adage, those who forget history are condemned to uh, repeat it. Uh, as the curriculum of many of these history books has a very strong pro-union driven uh, re- re- uh, revisionism to it. Uh, let me just, this one quote here, and you know, Here we are in the middle of the greatest recession that America has seen, um, uh, perhaps overshadowed only by the likes of the Great Depression of the late 1920s. Um, And if you try to understand what caused the Great Depression and the the crash of October 29, uh, here's where one history book squarely puts the responsibility. And I quote, Soon, Ford Automobile produced more cars than people could buy. Other business owners made the same mistake, and workers were fired. So many people lost jobs that the 1930s were called the Great Depression, close quote. So it wasn't the stock market crash that pulled the U.S. economy to its knees, that prevented people from having access to the credit and cash they needed to buy these things, that forced companies to fire workers. It was the greed of the companies themselves that produced more goods than where they were capable of selling. Talk about revisionist history. That's right. Isn't that, it, it's incredible. And uh, there's another example uh, talking about unions where the California Federation of Teachers has produced many lesson plans um, that teachers are using today. And one of those was how to start your own uh, small business, where they created the the Yummy Pizza Company, which, you know, on the face of it, you go, well, that sounds interesting. And I I personally, I come from a small business family, um, so I know the dedication and the hard work that goes into uh, especially starting a small business but maintaining one. Um, but what I quickly found as I read this lesson plan was that 40% of the lesson plan dealt with starting the union for the employees. And so suddenly it was obvious what this lesson plan was about was actually was, was the union component. And, uh, and so the other interesting thing that I find is that, so what happens is school districts and states have requirements. So... Um, students need to get, uh, you know, X amount of math and X amount of um, English and art and that sort of thing. And so what uh, what the activists will do is they insert these different types of things to meet their requirements. So in other words, in this Yummy Pizza Company example, um, the, the art component was creating membership cards and designing a logo for the union. Um, and so it's they are just they're absolutely relentless in cre in, in inserting this personal political agenda um, into curriculum. 
And, you know, again, I, I have no problem if teachers wish to organize and unionize and are looking for, you know, workplace standards and higher wages and things of this sort. That's fine. But don't bring that in as an, as an integral part of your job and recruit your students um, in, in the effort to try and then, you know, uh, be, uh, be minions for change. And, you know, maybe some you can get the, you know, bunch of six-year-olds to go out and lobby for higher pay. I mean, it's ridiculous. Oh. Well, and speaking of that, there's an example in the book where um, a, a third-grade uh, teacher from Milwaukee Public Schools in Wisconsin um, actually had her students write letters um, to the school board complaining about the budget cuts. And again, these are third-graders, so these are, what, eight-year-olds, maybe nine-year-olds. Mm-hmm. They can hardly, they don't even know about their family budget, let alone a, a multi-million, if not billion-dollar um, enterprise that is a, a public school district. And so she had her students write letters complaining about the budget cuts. And it's, it, what, what we see around the country is example after example of, um, of students being indoctrinated, um, students being used as pawns, unfortunately, to do the dirty work of the union. Well, I recall even talking to a young man that was a recent high school graduate, and we got on the topic of World War II, and um, I made some comment about Pearl Harbor, and the date December 7th did not resonate in his mind at all. Um, And after some protracted discussions, uh, he revealed to me that as best as he could recall, yeah, he kind of remembered a couple of details about it, but that they probably spent not much more than a half hour talking about Pearl Harbor and World War II and the American involvement in same, both in the uh, the Pacific Theater helping to uh, uh, to fight back the spread of uh, the Japanese uh, uh, onslaught, as well as as well as what we did in in Europe against the Germans, and uh, and yet though had great recollection of of uh, great detail, uh, spending what he characterized to be about a half a week talking about the results of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course, the events that precipitated all of that, uh, he knew nothing about. So, you know, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg? In this case, neither, I guess. That's right. And, and, and that is what is, is shameful, is we're losing our history. And our students are not coming out of, out of school uh, with just very basic knowledge about what America has done for the world and what free markets have done and what capitalism has done. And instead, uh, we are to blame, and, and, and the example of the atomic bombs, you know, we are to blame um, for, for, you know, the horrific events that took place um, because, um, you know, we're racist or we have this imperialist uh, agenda or, or whatever the case may be. And so uh, kids are coming out of, and, and to me this is the irony, is these are government schools. I mean, you would think government schools would be, if anything, would be indoctrinating students to be a pro-America, but that is not what is happening. I mean, they're coming out of government schools believing that America is to blame, uh, believing that free markets um, and, uh, and uh, capitalism are to blame for third world poverty because we go and we exploit uh, countries and we exploit people and we we uh, rape and pillage for resources in all of this i mean it's 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 an absolute shame um, but it is going on in classrooms around the country and so again i say um, and my question for parents is do you know uh, what your students are what your kids are learning 
And if you don't, you need to get educated toward that end, because after all, folks, we are paying for it to the tune of over $55 billion a year in the great state of California alone. We've just touched the surface of of a few of the excerpts of Kyle's new book, and it's a page-turner, it's an eye-opener, and if you've got kids that are attending government schools or grandkids, uh, get educated, would you? And maybe you're going to think twice about uh, what you need to do, and I know it's a tremendous sacrifice to a private school or homeschool school a child. Uh, but maybe uh, once you read the book, you'll find out it's high time you do so. Kyle Olson, thanks so much for being with us. The new book, by the way, published by Arthur House. And uh, you can get copies through Amazon.com or also information through Kyle's website at Kyle, K-Y-L-E, Olson, O-L-S-O-N, dot O-R-G. Again, the book, Indoctrination, How Useful Idiots Are Exposing Our Schools to Subvert American Exceptionalism. <laughs> And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing more than somebody who helps bring money and while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter that there are some doctors out there who, uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that it really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal, that's what we are doing this for, but we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health, and we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two you know that is that is how i was trained honestly and um, i i am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where i 
um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time, wasting my time, um, because I believed the surgeon's motto, you know, heal with steel, or, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. And some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's not all uh, for the patient. We, we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency to maybe, uh, and I know the, the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe within some within the medical community that you know why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure i'm the doctor i'm in charge i'm handling this almost sounding as if at a level maybe while not uh openly recognized almost a subconscious sense of well i'm not going to bring god into this equation because in my operating room i am god you know that is that is um I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one, because you, as you detail inside the pages of Grey Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray, and what that would mean, and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself, you go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. <laughs> tell, us, tell us what happened when, when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and... Um my dentist, I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of Novocaine. And, you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could, uh, so that I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> So I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they sure, do yeah, <laughs> they not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, "You know, God guide my hands. Uh, you know, bless David, something like that." And then I felt this peace come over me. It was it was just an unusual. I mean, 
the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's, as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why, why am I not at least asking them? Not pushing it on them, but I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office, where it was just just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point, and. Um, so I decide to pray with my patient of the day, and I walk up to her bed, and everything seems fine. She's got her two daughters there, but there's a nurse. There's a nurse, and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse. I mean, this, this I've decided, has got to be a top-secret situation. I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm, you know, one of those nuts or something. Of course, you're a senior medical staff. You could have just kicked her out of the room. <laughs> I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her, and I'm waiting, and finally I you know say okay, I'll have to pray another day, and I I back up to the nurses' station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided you know what I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so you know how we do. We pretend to I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone, you know. <laughs> So I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turn right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just asked for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success in Jesus' name. Amen. I looked up. 
she was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. And I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which, uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before. Because I, the, the patients looked to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, look, I'm not God, I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God, but I would be willing to talk to him with you, if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care, and that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer, One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation, Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer, one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician, and I've certainly uh, been guilty of that for many years, and so there's something about, um, as, as we give glory to God, there, it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I, you know, just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a, uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a problem in his in the brain he had a, a, a number of other problems he was only 40 years old and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back and so I I began to ask him about um, his emotional health and I asked him something for the first time I'd never asked a patient this before I said uh, Ron is there someone that you can't forgive He's an enormous man. He's this uh, marine, an enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools, and so I'm starting to roll away from him, <laughs> rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother. And I said, excuse me. I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father. And he said, no, my mother. And I said, well, well Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my... Uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would uh, they would get in fights with her. And I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I I stood up and I said, "Come on, mom, let's get out of here." And she said, "No, I'm not leaving." And I've hated her. He said, "I've hated her since that time." And I've um, 
in 30, that was 30 years ago. And so I said, wow, Ron, that's, that's what I'm looking for. But I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so, you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven. Is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery, and the surgery went well. But even six months later, he was still joyful because I had taken the time. Now, the interesting thing, when he, when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit, he said, uh, he said, I feel like calling my mother. Hmm. And he hadn't talked to her in 30 years. And so he, he, they had a family reunion. I mean, you know, that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family. Because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians, or even as friends, um, you know, we can, we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's, let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the, uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. Certainly it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life, too. Mm. It, it has, yes. I, I've, I've certainly, um, obviously, have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to... Um, you know, I actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's it's a it's just a beautiful time of my day. Um, and so yeah, my my life has changed, and I think I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book, Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, 
Grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.